0: Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. As much as I love history and enjoyed learning and sharing the historical events of Northern Michigan's bygone days on this podcast, music has always been my main passion in life. Even though I came to the realization very early on that as much as I practiced and studied and pursued a mediocre at best career as a guitar player, as I was not destined to be a rock star. Last year we had an episode on the Club Ponytail, a famous rock and roll venue located outside of Harbor Springs in the 1960s on the grounds of a former Prohibition-era gambling and liquor hotspot for the wealthy elite tourists of the day known as the Club Manitou. The subterranean speakeasy and the remains of the former teen music venue were located below and around an inconspicuous wood cottage that for several decades, was the home of my dear friend Judy Landis who passed away at the age of 92 on August 20th, 2023. This episode is dedicated in loving memory of Judy Landis. Back in the early 1980s, my family moved to Traverse City. I remember the first time I met a guy named Kenny Olson. Kenny came around the corner of a building on the campus at TC Central High School, looking very much like a younger version of Keith Richards. He was the first person I ever met that could actually play guitar and I was blown away. He and I became fast friends, and it was he and another friend that encouraged me to finally start taking guitar lessons with the hope of eventually being able to actually jam with them. It took a while. Kenny went on after high school to become a world-famous guitarist and founding member of the Twisted Brown Trucker Band, featuring a singer named Bob Ritchie, better known as Kid Rock. Kenny played the Super Bowl, Woodstock 99, and countless other high-profile gigs, including Saturday Night Live, all the late shows while touring the world. We have remained friends all these years and Kenny just recently built me my dream guitar, a teal green Fender Stratocaster that is loaded with musical mojo. During the process of piecing together the Frankenstein Strat, he and I started to discuss the musical legacy of Michigan and contributions of some of the musicians that have spent time in Michigan and have been inspired by our area. And not just Detroit, which has always been a major music haven, but Northern Michigan as well. For instance, just think of what Billy Strings, a Grammy Award guitarist who was based in the Traverse City area for a while, is out there doing right now, just tearing it up. Basically reinventing and creating a new genre of hybrid bluegrass crossover acoustic guitar playing unlike anything anyone has ever seen. And before Billy, we had Jewel, the very popular female singer-songwriter that attended the world-renowned Interlochen Center for the Performing Arts. She played small clubs in and around Traverse City during her time at the Academy, which ironically, she did not attend musical courses. Here in Petoskey, Michigan, I've had several encounters and run-ins with Mark Farner, lead guitarist of Grand Funk Railroad, one of the most popular and successful bands of the 70s. So as Kenny and I were talking over the last few months, I began putting together a list of possible episodes about Northern Michigan's influence and relevance in the American and even international music scene. Skip forward about two weeks ago, I was eating at Jose's Mexican restaurant here in Petoskey I ran into a musician friend just like always when we get together we just went off on one of our usual tangents about equipment current hot players old-school writers and composers etc then just a few days later by chance we were again at Jose's continuing our ongoing dialogue which no matter how much time we have to talk it never seems to be enough and I was late getting back to work and I was so excited actually that I even forgot to pay Jose for lunch and then it dawned on me Roger my friend is a six-time Grammy award-winning musical director and producer with a music resume that is unrivaled. Here I'm discussing with him potential guests and niche musical references to Michigan for the podcast, and he is literally the perfect guest to have on an episode discuss Michigan's musical heritage. So it's my pleasure to welcome to our show today the talented Roger Tallman of Creative Eye Advertising and Productions. Welcome, Roger.
1: Hey, thanks, Chris. Nice to be here this morning. Yeah, glad to
0: have you, man. Um, you know, uh, we met at Rotary Club here in Batonsse, P town. You were doing a presentation, and the attention grabber for the talk was Roger Tallman, Motown backup singer. And although Motown did have some amazing acts and players that weren't African American, how even Tommy Chong, I think, uh, started out with the, with a the contract at at, uh, at at Motown. Right. Uh, but Motown is generally associated with the endless lineup of amazing African American performers of the 60s and early 70s, Stevie Wonder, The Temps, Marvin Gaye. And to be politically correct as possible, Roger, uh, you are not the guy one would expect to be so substantially associated with Motown. That's true.
1: <laughs> That's true. Barry Gordy used to say, and I, uh, I say this endearingly, he said, go get those white kids. Because <laughs> <laughs> we'd be out in the lobby and the band was rehearsing and I'd hear this phrase, and I knew it was time to make some money and have some fun.
0: Tell us how you started your recording with Motown.
1: Uh, you know, it was, it's kind of an odd uh, story. I'll make it shorter. One of the fellows that went to my... Uh, my dad had a job as a choir director in Detroit on the weekends. So did my mom, and uh, he was normally a, a professor at Wayne State University. And as kids, we all learned how to read music because there wasn't much else to do when you were born in the 50s. And uh, so we all learned how to read music. And then in, in uh, the early years of high school, I had a little kid's choir at church on Sundays, something to do. My father's friend, uh, a producer for Motown, Harry Balk, famous guy, uh, produced The Temptations, Smokey Robinson, Martha Vandella, I mean, the, the, the list for his category of singers and hits goes on and on. And Harry asked me if I had any other kids that were singers like I was, who he knew I read music. And I said, why? And he said, well, I'm producing music for, uh, for Motown Records. And we need to get professional singers because it's taking us three hours to teach kids off the street to do the background oohs and ahs for a record. So I need people that can read. Can you put a group together and come down and audition? And uh, I did that. I got some people to drive me down to uh, Hitzville on Grand Boulevard. And we uh, were given some music. There was a great rhythm section there, the Funk Brothers, Bob Babbitt. Andrew Smith, uh, James Jameson also hanging out just to watch Bob Babbitt. All play. the heavy hitters, man. Oh man, great guys, and they were they were kind of waiting to see what we were going to do. A bunch of white kids come in. There were a group of six of us, three boys, three guys, girls, and we nailed three songs in twenty minutes. And uh, so Barry Gordy was in the booth with uh, Mylon Bogdan, who was their unbelievable engineer for many many years, and uh, he came out and asked Harry to come into the booth and. They were talking back and forth, and he was pointing at us, and Harry came back out, and he said, what are you guys doing Thursday? And across the talk back, Barry Gordy said, every Thursday. And so we looked at him and said, what do you mean? He said, well, we'd like you to come in every Thursday and after school and do uh, backgrounds, and here's what you're going to get paid. And I think it was five bucks a song, and we all like, yeah, that's great. (laughs) So that was what we did pretty much every Thursday for our high school years, and we did a lot of music, and, and in the in the process, we learned a lot about the players in the rhythm sections. We had no idea which group we were gonna be singing for, because they were just tracks in you the just background. Did the parts. tracks at that time, and then like six months later, somebody would have a rap radio on, and they'd hear a song, and I would start singing in the background. like, wait, I think I, I'm singing on that, <laughs> and it would be like the Temptations or maybe a smoky song, there was a group called uh, The Shades of Blue which Motown was trying to kick off and we were basically their sound and then they hired a bunch of kids to go out and do sock hops and uh, so that's kind of how it started with me and one thing led to another and I just realized that that was a great way to make extra money uh, besides singing at weddings and uh, so we we took that on as a, a regular job and it turned out pretty well so that's what we did for
0: quite a while now, you, you recorded mostly at Hitzville, or did you say at one point you would have even larger groups, sometimes like auditoriums or, or gymnasiums? Or... There
1: were other studios. There was a studio called B.A. Star recording on Davison. It was just really a, not a very good neighborhood, and we were all told to come after school, but to make sure that we, had, we were very aware when we were walking from the street to the building of, uh, you know that we were, had a, not to like, take a lot of time on the street, just get in the building and come and do some work. And then when we were done, we'd get walked out to of uh, somebody giving us a ride. So Davison was an uh, interesting studio, B. A star, and that's be- we went there because Motown was busy doing stuff. Maybe they had the real group at, at you know at Hitsville, but they still needed production. We worked for a producer. His name was John Reese, and he was one of their big producers besides Harry. Um, he was kind of a throwback to being a, a bohemian uh, writer himself killer lyricist and he was trying to reach out to other groups in detroit that were good that could possibly join the motown family so we all basically you know came to work and sang what was on the paper that was our
0: job it's funny, like, you think about that time. If you think of uh, going back to, let's go, let's, let's just jump forward maybe to, like, the 67, 66, 65 era, yeah. uh, you've got uh, these areas, these, these, these areas around the world. It's like Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page, they grew up three, four, five blocks from each other, two of the great guitar virtuosos in, in the world, sure. and they didn't even know each other, but there's something in the water sometimes, you know, what was going on in Detroit right at that time oh, with all man. these, I mean, that was like, that was like Motown and that era will be forever remembered in the, in the world of popular music.
1: Right, but then rock and roll came in, and that's, that's really changed quite a bit of stuff that was going on in Detroit. One of my high school graduate friends, a guy named Bob Bogaris, bought an old theater. He was one of the first people to kind of renovate a theater and make it into a music venue, and it was called the East Town Ballroom. And uh, he opened that up to, I, mean, I think we helped him out as friends, uh, as security. Basically, he put me on stage to make sure nobody would run up on stage when Janis Joplin came on and uh, kind of a neat job sitting on the corner of the stage. Of course, everybody was too ripped to even move (laughs) (laughs) during that venue. But um, the music was fabulous. I mean, everybody was there. Savoy Brown, uh, Howlin' Wolf came on. Janis Joplin was there 10 years after. I mean, it was quite. introduction to what rock and roll music was going to be like and all these English bands needed a place to stretch their wings and see what America's like. So Detroit being a hub became that place. I think we kind of started that with old theater renovations.
0: Yeah, and Detroit was like, I mean, that's one of the major stops. If you're if you you out there trying to make it as a, as, a, as a rock band, I mean, that was one of the main markets. Oh, yeah, Detroit totally. was a major market.
1: Well, you mentioned you did a show on the ponytail. I mean, when I was a kid up here uh, living in Bayview because my dad had a job as the dean of music there, the ponytail, when we had cars, that was the place to go on the weekend. And you'd see, like, the Kingsman singing Luai Luai, and that would never leave your brain. In a room full of, you know, like, there was no capacity... In those days it was elbow to elbow <laughs> no fire department was coming in and saying hey you got too many people in here but it was quite an experience you know that's that was my northern Michigan kind of uh, go get to in the summertime yeah know. it's funny
0: you're going back and forth between this Methodist camp from 1875 right town and yeah. Detroit, and the music scenes that are all happening sure. there. So you're seeing two major
1: oh it was fun it was fun and and I went to college at Bayview um, uh, Albion Summer College was there, and I wanted yeah, to take Albion. a chemistry class so I could not have to take it during the year. And our chemistry teacher was so cool. He was like, hey, it's a nice day. Let's go to the beach. We'll just talk about what, what I need to you know, impart on all you guys. But then you know, we'd have Northern Michigan at its finest to uh, kind of chill, relax, date. I learned the hard way. You can't have a summer girlfriend and a winter girlfriend and then have a birthday party in June with everybody you know <laughs> that was a good lesson in life
0: what, what yeah what age did you learn that one at oh really young it's
1: good to learn when, those kind of things when you're young
0: jumping back to, to motown so uh, you oh. said you mentioned some like some wedding gigs and stuff like that too yeah. but motown was kind of like like the first monumental like real 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 job you had you had like professional as a musician
1: right and that led to other things too i mean then i realized that singing was uh, actually a good vehicle for, you know, a career. And both of my sisters were professional singers. They were on television in New York on shows like the Perry Como Show and Andy Williams and Arthur Godfrey. And as a family, we would sit and look this, look at this little TV on Friday night when all these shows were on and look at it from the couch. And then at the end of the show, we'd be like two inches from the TV to be able to spot my sister in a group. And uh, that's kind of... How I realized that during school that there was more to life than just uh, going to college and becoming... I wanted to have a professional career, but all the way through college I kept making money in music. And I got a job as a jingle singer with uh, one of the top production companies in Detroit. His name was Artie Fields. He did every car commercial that ever was made uh, in Detroit. And he hired me as a background singer. I was one of the young kids and I had a really high tenor voice. He liked that and he liked the fact that I could read. So... I worked for him for quite a long time because the commercial world was totally different than the five bucks you make seeing backgrounds for
0: Pittsville. Uh, what age were you when you first started working at Motown? How old were you? Probably about,
1: uh, let's see, probably about fif- 15 and a half or 16 because I didn't have a license yet. <laughs> so, you know, you're dependent on how to get there, and uh, buses were not the best transportation, so it was always somebody... From our church, or you know, somebody that we knew that would get us to to and from.
0: How many how, how many songs do you think you sang on for Motown? Oh gosh, you
1: know, I never really kept track, but I would say like hundreds.
0: So you may be like literally like one of the most recorded individuals. I mean, like because like well, they had so many different session players. Yeah, but
1: you have to remember they were recording like twenty four seven, and they continued that even though even after they went to California, like in the seventies, they. They just had a music, you know, farm. It was coming every hour of the day. And those guys that were background musicians, like James Jameson and Dennis Coffey, they were working nonstop. You know, they'd go to work at eight in the morning and finish at seven at night.
0: And sometimes they'd go play gigs, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They'd they'd crash in
1: the. You know, or teach lessons.
0: And they'd go to sleep sometimes in the funeral home next door. (laughs) You ever hear that story?
1: No, but Bob Babbitt liked to play golf. And he was always bummed if some something went late because he had a golf match set up someplace, and he'd be you know really kind of annoyed with everybody if they had to do another take or another take or something had to be changed. But uh, yeah, great. I was always around really un- unbelievable musicians and singers, and and then that went on to my commercial thing, writing commercials. When I when I left Artie Fields Productions, I had a chance to be a composer for uh, the very very first commercial for national bank of detroit and i got that um and decided that that was a good path for me so i kept doing that in detroit and fm radio had just started so they were looking for somebody contemporary like we did a commercial for fago that uh was was fago's big you know yeah big pop in detroit and wb donor called me and said hey you're young i heard some good things about you can you do a something for fm radio so once we got one spot on the radio Another fellow approached me and said, I can sell this to everybody in Detroit. So he would go to Hugh Satcher Suffren and Hudson's and make deals like for cash and clothing for, for clothing stores. He'd say, Give us 2500 bucks in cash and $2,000 in clothing. And so we were the best dressed kids in town.
0: That's some serious coin for clothes, man. Oh, yeah, man.
1: Yeah. He was a clothes horse. And uh, so it was kind of funny to go into his bedroom and look in his closet, all these suits and stuff. And I was picking Levi's and you know, really cool big collar shirts and you know.
0: <laughs> it makes me think of that that scene in Goodfellas where uh where Henry first gets all the cash. <laughs> so, he's totally. walking around with all the <laughs> Yeah.
1: Whatever was styling, we were trying to go for that. So you had,
0: you and you had some dough in your pocket, man. And,
1: yeah. It it was interesting because when I started making residuals from commercials, that was ridiculous. In those days, every commercial you sang on, like I sang on an O'smobile commercial and my first check was ten grand. Oh my god. And I called Artie Fields and said, uh, Artie I got this check, I think there's too many zeros on it. And he said, no, you'll probably get two or three more of those. Because in those days, uh, if you're in the union, you would get paid by region of play. So you get paid for Chicago, you get paid for Detroit, you get paid for Philadelphia, you get paid for Texas. Each market. Every market. So the checks were really well defined, and and, uh, the agencies that ran the accounts wanted to make sure that everybody got paid for what they did. So it was a really cool kind of entree in into the music business, I was in college, my later years in college, almost done, and I would take all my friends out to dinner and say, I got this check, we're going to dinner, and first thing I would order, like, pie for everyone. Because <laughs> you'd, you'd the walk only... into one of those diners and there'd be that circular thing with pie, you know, calling you, hey, take a bite of me. So I would buy pie for everybody, and we'd sit down and have, you know, a nice dinner, and I'd pop for the check. Yeah, you're cause... like one
0: of the only kids in college that has cash at this time. Right? Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. It was unusual. But I wasn't a big spender, but every once in a while, it's like, hey, you know, it's time for us to all go out and have some fun. And um, during those times, I also sang in some rock bands just to see what that was like. But I'm not a rock singer. I'm more of a background kind of a guy and uh, not a step-out soloist. So Ooze and Oz were perfect for me. Ooze and Oz. And, I, and then, you know, the writing, the commercial stuff, I mean, we were writing everything uh, I did Buick commercials in Detroit as a composer, and then I uh all stuff that was more contemporary than the older guys that were writing commercial music. And that's kind of what we got, got me in, the, in that path to continue
0: writing. Are you still, at this time, you're still doing some gigs for Motown?
1: No, no, that, that's like long, long, long gone.
0: So you're sure that, that's, that's gone? Yeah,
1: and most of the people that you know were there, I mean, there are a few people that are still working, like Smokey Robinson will never give up. And, uh, but most of the other guys here are, you know, passed on to uh, another way of life or passed on to another world and are remem- remembered well for what they did.
0: Well, and, and I hate to start keep jumping back to Motown, but the first time I went into Hitsville, I was just, I was blown away. And, and uh, we had the rare opportunity that um, this woman comes out, this African-American woman comes out, starts giving us a tour. It yeah. Turns out to be Barry Gordy's sister. And, like, the tour guide just steps aside and lets her take us around. Right. And she's right. showing us Marvin Gaye's couch. She's telling us how much <laughs> how much money uh, Barry borrows from, borrowed from his dad, how his dad constructed yeah. the studio. She's giving this tour. And I'm thinking, well, this is a hell of a tour, right? right yeah. You know, 10 bucks or whatever. Right. And we get done. I, t- I look at the guy. I'm like, uh... uh does she always do? He goes. I've been here for twelve years, and she's never come out of her office one time. Right. Like you just had a once in a in a, in a lifetime chance, yeah, to have a tour of Hitsville with with Barry Gordy's with the real sister. Deal.
1: Yeah. Well, I went back with my family just to kind of show my son where I used to work, and and it wasn't like every day. You know, I would go in on Thursdays and with you know my group of people, usually the same people, and then you know you go on to other things, and then you get a call, come on back, we want you to do some more stuff, but. Uh, when I went back a, a few years ago, before my son went to college, I st- it was exactly the same way that it was in the '60s. It, I mean, the, they either took pictures and recreated it, or nothing ever got moved. I don't think everything got. I don't think you anything know, got moved. They just was, when they well, moved
0: out of there and went to Cal- California, they just left everything the way it yeah. was.
1: And I worked. I worked, when I went to California. They moved to California the same year. I got a job as a background singer after college working with my two sisters because, uh, I was on a break and one of them called me and said, Hey, we're going to do this show for Julie Andrews. We've never worked together. Why don't you come out and make some money and have some fun and work with us? So I did that and Motown moved the same time. Yeah. And I still had my jingle thing going on. So I would call up James Jameson and say, Hey dude, I'm, I'm working. I'm doing this jingle for somebody in Detroit or Chicago. I need a bass player. So, and then, uh, He'd call somebody else, and the whole crew would come in, and Bob Babbitt was out there, we ran into each other. He worked for me again for several years. But uh, they were a bunch of really hard-working guys, session players that cared about what they did. You know, if anybody made a mistake, it was like, "Okay, let's do another one." Nobody was getting off for being famous.
0: Just kidding yeah yeah and, and James Jamerson, I mean he's like like so for those listeners that aren't aware, he's like considered one of the, one of the best bass players ever to live He, he
1: invented that line um boom, bottom, boom, bottom, boom, bottom, boom, boom, boom boom, boom, bottom. He, he invented that line, and uh, he, he was kind of the you know the rock bottom guy for, for coming up with a, a cool bass line for anything they did.
0: And i, I, I got to try to remember if it was you or if it was Barry Gordy's sister that told me the track. There's a famous track that every bass player in the world has ever tried to recreate, and they can't ever nail it exactly right. Yeah. Well, James had had quite a day that day, and he played it laying on his back, flat yeah. on his yeah. back. Yeah. yeah. No wonder you can't recreate it, you know? I, I
1: mean, there's some killer bass players. Like in California, they had Carol Kay. Yeah, Carol. And, uh, but Jameson was like the East Coast kind of, you know, he, he was the moniker for that type of work. And uh, his son... After he stopped playing, his son was like as good, if not better, than he was.
0: You told me about doing a gig one time. It was supposed to be James. He said his yeah. son filled in, and was yeah, like,
1: his son came in and said of him. He came in and sat in the, in the booth, but he he wanted to introduce his son to me, and uh, James Junior was like killer. What 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 do
0: you what, what's what's the most popular song that people would recognize that you sang on at Mo, when you were at Motown? What, what what's like what's one you know you're on? Um,
1: uh, there's a song that we, I mentioned the group us. Oh, How Happy You Have Made made Me. And we did all the lead line as a group. And that was a group that they really tried to make famous called The Shades of Blue. And you had to really look deep to find that group. But they had a hit song with that. Oh, how happy you have made me. Oh, how happy you have made me. And that was like the main hook. Uh, it was like I've kissed your lips a thousand times. It was one of those really cool, upbeat Kind of, uh, you know, moniker, teen song uh, about kissing a girl for the first time. Yeah. So, you know, that was probably the one that I remember most because we actually got to sing the lead lines. Yeah, just the and, and it went on the radio, and then they went out to sock hops and sang it, the group that John Reese produced. But we did, we did the demo that was actually the single.
0: Are you, using, are you using this to pick up chicks at all? I mean, are you just like, hey, that's yeah, me? During other, that uh... time,
1: no, I was too busy doing other things, <laughs> like you know, trying to get my driver's license and, <laughs> you yeah, know, showing up at school, making you know good grades so I could go to college.
0: That's interesting. You kept pursuing, you know, the traditional school.
1: Oh, yeah, well, my dad was a professor, so it was required. You know, he was a professor and hardworking guy, and he and he he just wanted everybody to, you know, get to go to college and find out what you liked. Because college is like that, you know, a lot of people go and they have no idea what they're going to do. and
0: uh, Too many people do that. Yeah.
1: But, uh, you know, I learned that I didn't study music. I actually wanted to study medicine and uh, be a chemistry major. And uh, so that's why I took chemistry in Albion, because I thought I was going to be in a lab someplace with a white coat. And uh, that all changed, I think, when I sang that first Osmobile commercial.
0: Yeah, you got that first check. <laughs> I
1: realized, whoa, maybe, maybe I got a different path. So that, that that's serious cash
0: back then, man. That's oh, that's yeah. serious money.
1: <clears throat> yeah, and then in LA when I left Detroit, then I started doing the Carol Burnett show with my two sisters, and we did that for eight and a half years. But during that eight and a half years, I was writing jingles, and I finally got a chance to uh write the very first Toyota commercial uh, in America, and that was a big deal because foreign cars were not real popular, and. One of my friends in Detroit called me and said, Dude, you should open an office in, in, in New York. We could give you work. So I took him up on that and uh, winded down my stuff in LA and went to New York and started Tallman Music. And Campbell Ewald, the agency for Chevrolet, started giving me work because they liked my style. And that kind of allowed me to go and pitch other people in Manhattan that, you know, uh, this young guy from. Detroit and L.A. was willing to, you know, turn rocks over and look for work every day. And that's kind of what happened to me. And then NBC Sports came along later, and that was the career move of my lifetime.
0: Roger, uh, uh, we're out of time for this episode, and I have a lot more questions, and I know you have uh, some great more uh, tales to tell us. Uh, Can we have you back in two weeks uh, for another episode? Sure,
1: and I'll try to be not as long-winded. (laughs)
0: No, not at all, man. Um, Thanks for the
1: opportunity. It's nice to chat with you, man.
0: Thanks for joining us on Tales of Northern michigans Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Join us next time when we continue our discussion with the hippest musician I know, Roger Talman. Oh, man.
1: (laughs) Maybe maybe you have a few other people that you could put that moniker on, but I'll take it. All right.
0: (laughs) We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks, man.